Open up your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 once again. We're making our way through this epistle. We've been in there about six or seven weeks at this point, exploring what God has said to the Corinthian church and what we can get from it today. As you turn there, let me just uh, encourage the men. Uh, Don't forget, we've put several calls out, but we're going to begin a leadership mentoring program for all our men. First of all, men, if you're just hoping to be a sharper Christian man, we invite you to come. The purpose of these mentoring group is for leadership development. So if you got as you feel the Lord may be calling you to be an elder or a deacon, uh, please talk to me. Or if not, either, if neither of those, then you just want to come to be a group where you can be sharpened, then come see me as well. So we're going to begin those groups very, very shortly. Well, let's ask God one more time to bless his word this morning. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful epistle to the Corinthians. And thank you, God, for what you have said to Paul here about the word of the cross and the encouragement we could take from it. Prepare our hearts now for your word and also for the Lord's table at the conclusion of the service and be glorified by all of this, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we covered verse 18. Let's just start there for context. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Last week, we saw that Paul is continuing to speak to this Corinthian church. And, of course, they're having all sorts of issues within the church, being divided. And they're divided over who their favorite apostle is and who, who baptized them and who their favorite speaker is and all this kind of nonsense. And they're trusting in those things rather than what ultimately matters and what saves people, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which leads Paul to make this statement in verse 18, which we said last week, that The word of the cross is foolishness or folly to those who are perishing. We said last week there's this word perishing and the word being saved have a, it's an event that began in the past. So those people who, all people begin perishing from birth. We continue to perish as we live our lives. And if we do not repent of our sins and turn to Jesus, we will one day perish forever. But for the one who believes in the Lord Jesus, there was a day where they began perishing But then they were saved from the wrath of God. And God has justified them and sanctified them. And one day will glorify them. And this is all because of the word of the cross. It's the word of the cross which is the power of God. It is this word of cross which is the most important. And the reason Paul is bringing this up is he's answering the question, why? Why is the word of the cross foolishness? Why is it folly to those who are perishing? And in order to make the quote, the point, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. And that's that next sentence in verse 19. For it is written, he's quoting from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, this is God speaking, and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart Ultimately, he's going to get them back to the power of the gospel, the word of the cross, and why relying on human wisdom 
will not accomplish successful gospel ministry. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, which is at the crux of all life. It's the cross of Jesus Christ and what Jesus accomplished on that cross that has any power to change or save anybody from God's wrath. And the reason he quotes Isaiah 29 is if you look at the context behind Isaiah 29 is God says this, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Is because in Isaiah 29, God is warning Judah about the upcoming invasion by Babylon. Because Judah had relied so much on human wisdom, tradition, and letting the ways of the world creep into the nation so that they worshipped idols, they were unjust to the poor, they hated one another, they hated God, and they drifted far away into their sin. And in doing so, the wise people back in Judah led them astray. And God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise to show you that their ways lead to death. And in the same way, Paul's making that analogy that just as Judah relied on the wisdom of the wise and God brought judgment still, if you rely on human wisdom and rhetoric to accomplish the work of God, you will also send people to their destruction because you're preaching a false gospel. He's going to destroy these, the wise among them and the discerning who think they have life all figured out. This is what the Corinthians were bent on doing. They were relying on worldly wisdom, we saw. Philosophy, eloquent words of speaking in place of the gospel, in place of this word of the cross. And so people were like, we can't preach Jesus. That will offend too many people. And people say that today all the time pastors and churches. Well, you can't talk about the blood. You can't talk about God's wrath. Matter of fact, there was a very few years ago, there was a controversy because a, one of a denomination, I forget which one, it was in Europe, uh, wanted to take the song in Christ Alone by Keith and Kristen Getty. They asked permission to change the words. In one of those verses, in Christ alone, Keith and Kristen Getty write that at the cross, the wrath of God was satisfied. And they wanted to change the words to the love of God was satisfied. Replacing God's judgment and wrath upon Christ for sinners. Why? Because who? It's not nice to talk. We don't want to talk about that stuff. That's not ooey and gooey. We don't leave with warm, fuzzy feelings. Well, guess what? If you try to make the gospel any more palatable, palatable, if I could speak this morning, palatable, then you have done a great injustice to Jesus, a great injustice to sinners by softening or watering down. Because guess what? If you're trying to not make it sound so foolish to them, you're losing. They already think it's foolishness. They already think it's folly because they're perishing. That's why. God is going to destroy the wisdom of the wise in Corinth that think the preaching of the gospel is merely an intellectual exercise. Because there were some very wise people in Corinth, in Greek culture. Which is why Paul responds to them. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God... Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
He has three groups of people here that he's about to smack down. The wise, the scribes, and the debaters. The one who is wise, you could say, were the intellectual elites of society. They would be those who would be considered to be geniuses and well-versed in philosophy. D.A. Carson says that wisdom in the first century was, quote, a public philosophy, a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life and ordered the choices and values and priorities of those who adopted it. And you needed philosophy to, quote, make sense out of life. So you don't need God's word. You don't need the gospel. You don't need Jesus. Just tell people all this other mumbo-jumbo psychology and they'll be okay. This is the people who claim to be wise. And what Paul is doing by asking this question, where is the one who is wise? He's relating it to the word of the cross. Are they being saved or are they perishing? Where, where is the one who is wise? Oh, I'll tell you where they are. They're perishing. Why? Because they think that the power of God comes from their wisdom. They think they could philosophize their way into heaven. Where's the one who is wise? He's perishing. Does, does the gospel come from human wisdom? Did you get the gospel by listening to Plato? No. As a matter of fact, if you take all the human wisdom in the world, all the geniuses, the Einsteins, the Carl Sagan's, all the great thinkers, Neil deGrasse Tyson, all the people that people think that are so genius and wise and have all these smarts, you put them all together of all human history, wrap them up in a pretty package, take all the philosophies of life and try to make sense out of this life, and you still don't know God. You still go to hell when you die. Where's the one who is wise, Paul says? You think that's the answer? Human wisdom? No. Where's the one who is wise? He's perishing because of his wisdom. There isn't one who is wise relying on this Sophia, this philosophy, who is saved. They are perishing because they think that intellectualism saves them. And we have a lot of people like that today. We have two people too smart for their own good. You know what I mean? A lot of pastors and theologians, they know Jesus very good up here, but not down here. They know the facts, but not the heart of the message. When you reject the word of the cross because you think it's foolish, you show yourself the fool. You are the one who becomes the fool, not God not the gospel, because you keep down that road of human philosophy and wisdom, and it will lead to your ultimate perishing. The second group, he says, where is the scribe? If the wise were the intellectual elites of the day, the, the scribes would be the religious elites. These would people who would be Greek-speaking Jews in Corinth who were considered to be the experts at God's law. They knew the Jewish tradition and heritage so well. They knew God's law so well. But again, just like so many pastors and theologians say, they do not know the heart of it. They do not know what God's law was leading them to, which is what? The gospel. Everything in this Old Testament has its... Um, 
purpose to point us to Christ. From Genesis all the way through Malachi, it's all pointing to the need of a Savior. It's all pointing to God's promises to save those who are lost. All of it. And all those people, all these Pharisees and scribes who were experts at God's law are also perishing. They're, Paul is saying, where are they? Is anyone going to heaven for being an expert at the law? No, they're not. Just like the Pharisees, they abuse God's law and place burdens on people that are too heavy to carry. They think they're experts in God's law, and they reject Jesus and the cross because they say it's foolish. But when they do that, they prove themselves the fool to be the fool as they miss all of the signs that God has given to point them to the Savior. In fact, that the, the best thing that the scribes can do is to give you more law. That's all they can do. If you're an expert at the law and you have no gospel, then all you can do is just give more law to people. This is what's wrong with you. This is what's wrong with you. That's like going to the doctor and he tells you what's wrong with you, but doesn't know how to help you. He doesn't give you any medicine or treatment. And he can do nothing for you. Matter of fact, he just keeps his mouth shut and just says, this is what's wrong with you. Sorry, you're out of luck. No. What happens to those who are experts in the law? Where is the scribe? I'll tell you where he is. He's perishing. He's not being saved like those who think the cross is the power of God. Why? Because they've rejected this word of the cross. How about the debaters? This is the third group. The debaters, as the word will tell us, were those who were skilled in debate, public speaking, oratory skill. To them, your form was more important or just as important as to the content of your message. It's not just what you say, but it's how you say it. That's the most important thing for the debaters, that they could entertain people or, again, philosophize by their skill and personality and charm and bring them into heaven that way. And this is perhaps why a segment of the church was so attracted to Apollos. Because Apollos was known as an eloquent speaker. The, the debater said, oh, we, we don't really mind what Apollos is saying, but we just care what, look how he's doing it. Where's the debaters who are speaking eloquent words of wisdom? Where are those who are depending upon those things to be saved? Yeah, just like the wise and just like the scribes, they perish. And then Paul says this, after asking, where are those people? He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The wise, the scribes, the debaters think the gospel is foolish, that the cross is foolish, and that the God of these Christians is foolish. But actually, again, God has exposed them for being the fools when they don't have the answers to how to stop people from perishing. And this is what he's trying to get this church to see and understand. Now, why? Why, Paul? Why has God made foolish 
the wisdom of the world. How did God do that? How did God make wisdom of the world foolish? Look, look at verse 21. For, and that's our connecting word, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is fascinating. In God's wisdom, he made it so that the world cannot know him by wisdom. By human philosophy is the word. You can't figure God or salvation or eternal life out by understanding the general theory of relativity. Or the speed of light. Or how to land on the moon or explore Mars. You think that's, yeah, that makes you special and important. But the only thing that matters is if, is if you know God. And you can't figure God out or how to be saved by understanding this other stuff. There's no way, there's no other way to get to heaven but through Jesus Christ alone. And that does not come from human wisdom or philosophy. Nobody can think their way into heaven. Nobody can educate themselves into heaven. There's only one way to know God, and it's not through your brain. It's through your heart. This is why God takes out our heart of stone. God doesn't give you a new brain when you get saved. What does he give you? A new heart. He takes out your heart of stone that was dead and cold towards him, and he gives you a heart of flesh of course, we're not talking about the physical organ beating in us. We're talking about our soul, our ability to know God and trust God and to worship God. This doesn't come through our brains. It comes through our heart as the Holy Spirit enlightens us to the truth and convicts us of sin and shows us Jesus himself. So why did it, it please God in the wisdom of God? God, this is God's plan. God says, I'm going to make it so you can't think your way to heaven. That's my wisdom. It pleased God then through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Again, incredible. The same thing that these people think are stupid, dumb, foolish, is the very thing that is wise. The very thing that they think is foolishness is actually true wisdom. This flies in the face of the debaters who thought that the power of the speaker is in his ability to communicate, not the content of the message. You know, people flock to communicators. I, I agree. We, no one wants to be bored. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear a talk or a sermon and just sleep their way through it, right? But give me somebody who's boring, who will tell me the truth any day over someone who will tickle my ears and, and have me um, be entertained through his speech. Because what matters most is not how we say it, although that's important, what matters most is what we say. And that's what Paul says. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach 
He isn't saying that what we're preaching is foolishness from a Christian perspective. He's saying it's foolishness from a, from a worldly perspective. God then confounds the wisdom of the wise by what? By taking what they consider to be foolish to be the answer and to save those who believe that message. Incredible. And it pleases God. Why does it please God to take something the opposite of what the people are looking for? I'll tell you why. Because if we could get to heaven just using worldly wisdom, who gets the credit? We do. Man does. If we can get to heaven by being experts at the law and the tradition, and we can get to heaven somehow by being good enough, who gets the credit? We do. If man can use his skills and abilities to persuade people to get to heaven by his charm or his abilities without talking about the cross, who gets the credit? We do. The preacher does. The pastor does. So this is why God is pleased to use foolishness to save people. Why? Because he gets the credit. He gets the credit. It is God who saves. It is God who seeks his glory. And it's God who's saying, just so nobody gets a big head, I'm doing it the complete opposite way you guys want. The very thing you hate, the very thing you stumble over, I'm using to save the world. What is that? God, the Son incarnate, hung on a tree, dying a sinner's death, absorbing the wrath of God, for all those who would believe. Huh? No, no, it's got to be more complicated than that. No, if you believe that, repent of your sins. That's the power of God to save you. You will stop your perishing and start being saved. No, no, it, it's got to be another way. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I got to put my fingers on it, my hands on it. No, this is what pleases God. It pleases God to do it His way. It pleases God for Him to get all the credit. It pleases God for Him to get all the glory. That's why it pleases God. Through the folly of what we preach. So what's Paul saying here? Keep preaching. Keep preaching. And don't compromise the truth. Don't compromise the truth. And unfortunately, this happens all the time. This happens all the time, even in our own city. Churches are fixated on bigger buildings and bigger budgets. And let's do things just to get more people in here so we can get more money and more people for the glory of the pastor. That's wicked. That's wicked. If what we preach drives everyone away, then so be it. If that's what God wants them to hear. We're not here to tickle anybody's ears. And if we rob people of the truth, if we rob people of the Word of God, then we will be held accountable. We will have to answer to God for making it far too easy for people to go to hell because we refuse to love them and tell them the truth the way it is. We will not do that. We will not do that. May God be glorified by using 
ways that we can't imagine through his word to save those who believe. Now, why, Paul? Can you tell us why that's not the way God works? Look at verse 22. Here's another connecting word, for. Whenever you see the word for, just go back to the previous point. (laughs) He's building a case here. Why? Why does God not do that? This is why. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Yesterday, Jeff and I were sharing the gospel with an individual and the conversation kept resorting back to good works. And whenever he got to good works, Jeff and I would bring it back to Jesus, back to the cross. And he said, yes, yes, but we have to, but Jesus was crucified. And finally, at the end, the guy wasn't getting it. And I said, by the way, I'm preaching my sermon tomorrow, and it's about Christ crucified. (laughs) That's what it is. That's the gospel. Pray for this man to be saved. He heard the gospel. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's the message. That's what the world needs to hear, no matter how foolish they think it is. And then he says, it's a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Why Jews seek signs. What does this mean? This was very characteristic of the Jewish people in the first century. They required supernatural evidence so that they could believe. Jesus even said this of them and called them out. And he says, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks for signs. You want a sign? You want a sign that what I'm telling you is true, Jesus says? The only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah. And what's Jesus saying? As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the big fish, so will I be in the heart of the earth. That's your sign. What's your sign? The resurrection. What's your sign? My death and resurrection. That's to be the sign to Jewish people. But yet, Jews demand signs. God has given it to them, but they don't like it. It's foolish. Why? Because our Messiah wasn't supposed to die. Our Messiah was supposed to bring peace to the world. Our Messiah was to make all things new and free us from our enemies. And yet they miss the purpose of the first coming and just want to see the glories of the second. They confuse the two and, and, and try to make them one when they're two. The first coming of Jesus was to die a sinner's death and to redeem his people. The second coming is to come as king to, for his redeemed people and to make them one and to make all things new. Jews stumble. It's a stumbling block for Jews. But the resurrection is the supernatural evidence they want, but they still think it's foolishness. And Greeks seek wisdom. The Greeks sought for rational evidence. Make it make sense to me, and then I will believe. Right? So Jews want supernatural evidence. Greeks, Gentiles in this day in Corinth wanted rational evidence evidence. Explain to me how two plus two equals four, and then I'll believe. Explain to me how this 
this Jewish man in Jerusalem died on a cross by the Romans, and you're telling me that I'm not going to hell? Imagine that message. You're, you're a Gentile living in Corinth, have never been to Jerusalem a day in your life, and I'm telling you, as Paul coming in, Jesus, who was a Jew, died for you. You're going to be like, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense. I'm from Corinth. What does that have to do with me? They seek rational evidence. And this is why their rational evidence, their, again, searching for wisdom, is a stumbling block to them. It's a folly to these Gentiles. But Paul says, this is what happens. They seek signs. They seek wisdom. But what do we do? Do we give the Jews the evidences of supernatural abilities? Nope. Do we give the Greeks what they're looking for, the wisdom? Nope. What do we do? We preach Christ crucified. But Paul, you're not going to have a very big church. Just give them what they want and they'll come. We preach Christ crucified. Does that make sense? They're going to think it's stupid anyway. Give them the truth and God will save who he wants. That's, that's the power of God. That's the power of God. We preach Christ crucified. It doesn't make any sense. But the power of God awakens a sinner's heart to draw him to himself so that they would believe that's the power of God. And it's the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is not how to live your best life now. A lot of people deceived by that. The gospel is not feeding the poor or helping the homeless. The gospel is not healings or canceling sins like racism. The gospel is not about healing our own diseases or illnesses. The gospel is not political and who's in the White House. The gospel is not how we worship, traditional or contemporary. The gospel is not my testimony. The gospel is not increasing my wealth or making my life better or creating a better me. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ was crucified and he died, was buried, and rose again from the dead. And all who believe in him and place their faith in him will be saved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. All people like to do is to take the, the fruits of the gospel, the benefits of the gospel, and they confuse that with the gospel. And all they do is lead people to hell with a false gospel. And Paul narrowly defines what the gospel is. And you might think, that's very narrow-minded of you, Dan. Well, I didn't write it. God did. God, through Paul, wrote 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul tells us what the gospel is. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received. That, here it is. What's the gospel, Paul? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. If someone asks you, explain the gospel to me, it's very simple. Jesus died, was buried, 
and rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. Don't confuse anything else with it. Simple message of crucified Christ and a risen Christ. And there are people trying to diminish the meaning of this today. Beware. And again, what men think is foolish is actually the power of God. It's the power of God to save. It is the cross that is the stumbling block for Jews. It is the cross that is a folly to Gentiles. But is in fact the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God to cause Jews to stumble and for Gentiles to think it's foolish. God thinks that's wise. Because as we sang earlier, salvation is of the Lord. The Lord is my salvation. But here's the good news. And this is where it gets, you see the wisdom of God. And you see the power of God. Because then you think, if all Jews stumble and all Gentiles think it's foolish, then who gets saved? Who is it that actually believes? Look at verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What does it take for a Jew not to stumble? To be called by God. What does it take for a Gentile not to think the gospel is foolish? To be called by God. This word calling, if you're in my 1689 group, you already know it. It's all over the New Testament. It's God who draws us to himself. It is God through his Holy Spirit who calls us to be saved. Yes, we call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Amen. But the reason we call on the name of the Lord to be saved is because God first calls us to be saved. It is God who turns the light on in our heart. It is God who takes that truth and replaces our stony hearts with a heart that could hear, with eyes that could see, and with ears that can listen. It is God who calls because it is God commanding sinners to be saved. And again, if it relies on the call of God for, not, for someone, like a Jew, to not stumble, and for a Gentile not to folly, If it takes God to call, who gets the credit and who believes? God. This is what Paul's trying to say here. You people are trying to give the credit to yourselves and to Apollos and to me and to um, Peter. No. The power of God is a crucified Christ. And it's God's calling and sovereignty and salvation to bring sinners to himself. That's the gospel. And he's talking to people in this church who are Jews, who are Gentiles, who are being saved, like he said in verse 18. They would resonate with that. They're like, yeah, I I didn't think I'd believe this a month ago, but something happened in me. God awakened my dead heart to repent of my sins and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I don't think the gospel is foolish. It's God who gets the credit, not me. Not me. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks. Oh, if it wasn't for God, brothers and sisters, we all go to hell. If it's not for God, I don't care if you're the most passionate, studied, uh, funny, humorous, engaging person to speak. 
Without the power of God and the Holy Spirit, the people who listen to you go to hell. It's the power of God through the word of the cross that saves, not the preacher, not the pastor. Don't give us any glory. It's God. It's God. That's why people are called. That's why people believe. And this, and this is where it gets even better than that. What does he say? To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now listen to this. In the wisdom of God and by his effectual calling of sinners to himself, he gives the answers to what they're seeking for. Look at this. Christ is the power of God to Jews, not a stumbling block. And the Gentiles who are seeking for wisdom, Christ is the wisdom of God to them. So here's these people looking for supernatural evidences or rational evidences. And when God awakens their heart and calls them to himself, he shows them that Christ is the answer to what they're needing. And this is the glory of God and a crucified Christ You're saying, Dan, I don't know how to share the gospel with someone. Preach Christ crucified and risen again. Everybody can do that. Everybody. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to be a pastor or a deacon or an elder. You, you brother and sister, you who already know the story, you who already know what's happened in your heart, you preach Christ crucified. The word preach literally means proclaim. And we're all called to be preachers. We're all called to be preachers, men and women. Only men are called to be pastors, according to the scriptures. But all are called to be preachers, proclaimers of the truth, heralders. Preach Christ crucified. That's how you preach the gospel. And risen again. Oh, Dan. I mean, what, what I mean to tell you is the person I'm speaking with is very intelligent. And, and they're an atheist. And they don't believe in anything supernatural or anything. How do I share the gospel with them? Preach Christ crucified and risen again. No, no, Dan, they're, they're going to think that's foolish. Can you give me something else, another tip? Preach Christ crucified and risen again. Why? Why? Why, Dan, do we preach Christ crucified Look at verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is not saying that God is foolish or weak. Let's be clear. He's taking the words that these people use of God and the gospel. And to say the foolishness of God is even wiser than they think is wisdom. And it's stronger than what they consider to be strong. What men think is foolish is wiser than their wisdom. And what men say is weak is stronger than what they consider to be strong. And at the end of the day, only God can do this. Only God can do it. So, Paul, again, he's saying, why say you belong to Apollos? Why say you belong to Paul and to Cephas? Why? Preach Christ. Preach Christ. To those who believe, they are being saved. And why? Because God has had power in them to awaken them to their sin and to who the Savior is. Amen, amen. 
May God be glorified. So brothers and sisters, may we never rely on worldly wisdom to do the work of God. May we never seek what the world is talking about and trying and being duped by all these latest fads, thinking that that's somehow going to help people to get saved. I'm telling you that many churches are filled with church members who are lost because they've been persuaded to become a part of a church without the true gospel. And that, that makes me tremble. That makes me tremble. Don't you think that because a church has thousands or hundreds, that they're somehow doing the work of God? They could be. Maybe they are preaching the true gospel. But in so many cases... They have not gotten big or successful, quote-unquote, because they have preached a crucified Christ. It could be that they have attracted people by the wisdom of the world and not the foolishness of what we preach. Trust God. Share Christ. You have more opportunities to share Jesus than you probably think. Open your eyes and do it. I encourage you to take gospel tracts with you that are out in the Welcome Center, there on the wall. Take them when you go out to eat. Take them when you go to the store. Take them with people, whoever you encounter, and share Christ. You never know what God is going to do through that. Let's pray. Oh, God, help us. Help us today as we consider the words of this chapter. Oh God, thank you again for making the wisdom of the world to be foolish and that the cross of Christ is actually the power and wisdom of God. May we be found faithful, God, to do what you've commanded us to do and may we not be ashamed of the gospel. May we not be ashamed to preach about a crucified Jesus who has taken on the wrath of God. May we not be ashamed to persuade people that Christianity or this life is all about self-improvement. But that it's about repentance and trusting in Christ. May we never deceive people into thinking they just need a makeover. But may we persuade people that they need a resurrection. Because we preach a crucified Christ who has risen again, the wisdom and power of God. Oh God, save those who need to believe, in this, believe the gospel this morning. I, I'd be a fool to think that everyone in this room or listening online is a Christian. Oh God, I pray that you would soften their heart, draw them to yourself, call them to yourself, even though they stumble, even though they think this is foolish, and save them, God. Father, now as we move into a time of remembrance of the Lord's Supper, as you've commanded us, as we remember Christ crucified through the elements of this table, may you fill us with the presence of Christ, the spiritual presence of Christ. May you nourish our faith, grow our faith as believers. 
May we confess and repent of sin and run to Jesus for hope. Lord, we may have sinned greatly this week. Remind us that we have a Savior that has, that has promised to forgive us of our sins if we confess it and, and trust in Him. And then give us this assurance of pardon as we confess our sin and remember Christ. Oh Lord, may none of us take this table lightly as we remember our crucified Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.